You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Hello. Guess what I heard this week? And I recorded it. First cicada of the season. Hello, Summer. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the weekend edition. The weekend edition, the Saturday edition, pardon me. Uh, another edition tomorrow night when we talk about um, American immigration. I think it's pretty much for American consumption. It's called American Intolerance. Just how awful America has been regarding immigration. Is that true? I think they've been, um, you know, people have prejudices, and but all in all, they've been better than some places. And I think it's even today, it's harder to get into Canada than it is to the United States. Anyway, the author is Robert Bartholomew. He has a lash at American history, uh, American intolerance. We discuss the book tomorrow evening. There's a big flash new publication called Fight for the Forests. Uh, I recommend you go have a look at it, maybe even buy it, because uh, it's the story of the campaigns to save our native forests, and simply, we they just wouldn't be there unless these people had fought for them. Uh, probably considered communist activist hippies in the day, but uh, they really, really did make a difference. So hats off, we speak with the author later on in uh, Environ News. He was one of those people up a tree. Steve Bensonman, along with Stephen King and uh, and that lot. So the Puriora Forest, the Furunaki. Oh man, the Furunaki Forest is something else. I will continue with our reader poem um, series. George Henderson of The Puddle, he's a real literary soul, so a great get for Read Me a Poem. Uh, that will be tomorrow evening around the 10.30 mark. Science this hour, though, and astronomy, big astronomy news with another successful landing by NASA. They're very good at this, at Mars now. Uh, but next up, Science Report with Sean Hendy. What were those strange murmurings in the Earth's crust? Uh, that happened just uh, a, a week or so ago. And Gene edited babies. Someone's done it secretly and let the cat out of the bag. Good evening. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Sean Hendy, Auckland University, uh, with us for Science Report this week. And I was fascinated to read just uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was, um, these strange, uh, they were even called signals, um, strange yeah. noises that the Earth was making, uh, unlike right. an earthquake or anything like that. And what the hell could it have been? Yeah, no, these were really mysterious. I mean, it's only a few weeks ago, actually. It was the 11th of November. 
um, and these um, signals were picked up around the world. So this is um, uh, not something that just um, you know happened in one place. You know, normally we think of an earthquake, mm. um, you know, generating a big shake and it kind of dissipates as it as it spreads out. And so you don't expect to sort of detect um, uh, these big shocks on the other side of the world. But this is a this is a very different kind of seismological signal, very low frequency, so kind of more of a rumble. Um, than a um, you know a sharp shock that we normally get from an earthquake, yeah. and certainly not not detectable by people, right? So you it, you know it's not something that you were going to feel, mm. but nonetheless pick, picked up by some other um, seismological uh, measuring stations. Not strong enough that it sort of triggered triggered an, an earthquake alert, right? Mm. So, and so none of these stations went off saying earthquake, but nonetheless once people sort of started comparing all the, um, uh, the monitoring equipment around the world, it was clear that something had happened and, and you know, travel around the world. Um, and that thing was traced back to um, just off a, uh, an island off the west coast of Madagascar. Um, uh, oh, so, right. Yeah. I know what it is now. Sean, it's a blue whale. A blue whale. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of ramming, the, ramming this island or something. Is yeah. that, is that the... <laughs> oh, no, all going oomph, oomph, or whatever <laughs> they do. <laughs> That's the whole theory. Huh? Well, you know, I mean, so so possible, I guess, right? There's a, there's a hypothesis. Um, but the, the seismologists sort of got together um, and ha- had some discussions on Twitter and um, compared notes. And so, there's you know, there's a bunch of things that could have been. I mean, we know that landslides, undersea landslides, can produce this kind of... Um, Effects. I mean, um, you know, when a when a cliff under the under the sea collapses, which happens from time to time, that that can happen. Um, but that didn't seem to be the best explanation. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't the type of signal that we get from an earthquake. Um, but and actually, the, the the theory that they've come up with is is a big movement of magma under the under the the sea. So it's on, you know, and under the ground, under under the sea bed. Uh-huh. Um, a large, very large movement of magma shifting underneath the ocean bed. And that, that's what they think generated the signal. Oh, so the magma would have to have somewhere to move into. So yeah. are, are we, uh, can we infer then there is some sort of void? Yeah, so, so this is, it, it's, it's, somehow it's, it's flowed from one chamber to another. And of course, this, that part of the world around Madagascar, there are volcanoes. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine that, you know, relatively near the surface, you might have a pocket of magma that's flowed from one chamber to another, and then that chamber has collapsed, um, uh. generating this generating this signal. Um, and, you know, big big amount of magma, so you know, a couple of kilometres squared of oh, it. Yeah. So not not small, um, but overall, that's just produced this disturbance that's travelled around the world. I mean, I find it's quite amazing that a Something like that can uh, can travel all that way and be and be detected in many parts of the world. And it was in part due to, or a nice example of, uh, I suppose you could call it citizen science, but a lot of serious professional and serious amateur scientists around the world all kind of helped. Yeah, I mean that's one of the nice things about the seismological data is they do it is shared openly. You know, so you can go if you're an amateur sleuth. You can go look at this data online, and you can you can look for these types of events. Yeah, so it was a combination of um, old professional scientists and um, citizen scientists, just you know, looking at working with data. So it's a great example. I think there's more and more examples of this happening as we, um, you know, as we put more scientific data on on the World Wide Web. Um, people with 
people with an interest, not a professional interest necessarily, yeah. but who are just curious, you know, start looking at the data and, and finding stuff that scientists, um, you know, ha- haven't noticed or, or perhaps don't have the time, you know, in their um, in their work programs to um, to look at. Yeah. So that's, that was really cool. Undersea landslides, they can be quite massive. But there's a, um, while we're at it, I would love people, if you haven't seen this, you, you can see this just as plain as day. Uh, go to the islands of Hawaii on Google Earth and have a look at Molokai. It's the wrong shape. Um, it's, it's sort of thin and triangular. And you can see underwater where the rest of the island went. Pretty much over just, they reckon, just a few hours. It is one of the most massive landslides you could ever imagine. And to think of the consequences of it, apparently um, the, the Hawaii is made of wheat mix and it falls apart quite regularly. Um, th- if you just go and have a look at it, you can see the rest of the island in bits. And the geologists uh, um, and seismologists have, can get those bits that they mapped under the ocean, put them back together and say, oh, yeah, that was what the island used to be like until it fell off. It's an yeah. amazing thing. Yeah. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. The thought that an island would just fall apart. That's yeah. um, quite incredible. Yeah. Okay, let's go to gene-edited babies. This does make yeah. people bristle and say, you're playing God and it's a dreadful thing. But well, I don't know, is it? Yeah, well, it's, it's, this is this is a really controversial story um, this week. There's a Chinese scientist who's been using, um, he's actually a physicist, which which I think makes it really odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's been doing this stuff under the radar. He hasn't really been telling people about it, but he made a big announcement um, at a at a conference last week um, that he has in fact used the, this new CRISPR technology. Now we've talked about CRISPR mm-hmm. um, before. It's 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 based on um, types of enzymes that they've that they discovered in bacteria. The bacteria are actually clipping off bits of um, DNA from viruses and then storing that in their own um, DNA in order to, to spot the virus when it comes back so their immune system can, can fight it. And, and people recently have been using this CRISPR technology to, to edit um, DNA um, in all sorts of organisms. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a really precise, specific yep. type of um, genetic engineering that we haven't had access to before. Mm-hmm. And of course, the big question is, well, should we be doing it on on people, on humans? Um, and so, this Chinese scientist, um, he uh, he used the CRISPR technology to uh, to edit uh, uh, some uh, DNA from some uh, IVF um, cells. So this was this these were used to um, were going to be used to uh, to grow new babies for for a couple from where the father had been HIV positive. So one of the one of the issues, of course, with children um, born to uh, parents who are, uh, have um, HIV um, is that they can they can pick this up as well. So what he's done is he's edited a particular gene that gives people um, potentially gives people immunity to HIV. Oh, is, good is, God! This has only got to be a good thing. Surely, yeah. Well, that's it's it's you know it's this it goes back to this playing God because of course this this doesn't just mean these children um, uh, pick up this gene; their children will have it too. Great, and their children will have it after that. And, Excellent. And I guess I guess the, I guess the thing is the under, unintended consequences um, of this type of editing. Yeah. So he hasn't he, he he's um, he's been flying under the radar ethically. So normally scientists. 
you know, when we, when we do something like this, we have to go through an ethics committee. We have to put an application to our university um, or to the government uh, through ethics committee. Now, and he he has done that, but he, he claimed it was um, uh, he, what he was doing was producing an HIV vaccine. Um, and so that's how he described what he was doing to his ethics committee. Oh. Um, and then he's come out and he's announced, well, actually, no, I was, I was, um, uh, I was editing um, their genomes. Um, and so we've, yeah, we've, got, we've had the first humans, I guess, that that uh, born and are going to grow up um, that have have had um, uh, been genetically engineered. So it's quite a, you know. There'll be different opinions on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, um, but mm. actually we've kind of now let that genie out of the box. Yeah. Um, right. And and people, I, I mean, the reaction in China has not been great, <laughs> so I suspect he's actually going to get into quite a bit of trouble because he hasn't, you know, he has he's done it under the radar and he hasn't gone through the proper processes. Uh. Um, but it's also exposed the fact that the regulations in China are, are kind of vague, yeah. um, so it's not clear whether he's broken any laws and doing this. He's certainly, you know, he's certainly done it um, under the radar and, and, and in a underhanded kind of way, but whether he's actually broken any laws is not clear. So I guess we'll we'll be finding out um, over time as to as to um, how much trouble he gets into. But certainly the, the, the scientific world is pretty pretty shocked. Um, you know, I think I think there'd be a different a range of opinions that scientists would have about this. Um, you know, I, I personally think it's, it's it is inevitable. We just it's something we're going to have to uh, live with, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Um, but I think the scientific community would have preferred we did it in the open um, and not not just surprise everyone with, with yeah. Yeah. this kind of announcement. So anyway, so that's let's let's watch this space and see what happens. Um, one you know, can, we'll, one could also think of another way that. Uh, uh, population can get immunity to a threatening disease, uh, and that's kill most of them off. Like, uh, ha- yeah. ha- why so much of the European population today is actually resistant to bubonic plague? It's because three quarters of them bloody died. Yeah, that's, no, that's the right. other option, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, it, it's um, it's kind of interesting. You know, when you know, because of course that's just that's something that happens to us. You know, yeah. we don't. Uh, uh, we don't make choices as a, um, you know, as a society about that kind of thing. It just happens, and so I guess now we're in a position where we could make choices. And yeah. and now this opens up questions. Well, who should have access to this kind of technology? Because you know it's not cheap. Um, we're going to see, we're going to see the the super rich. You know, will that be the next thing? Um, you 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 break, get your super yacht um, and your genetically engineered children. So I think those those kind of questions that we're going to have to we're going to have to deal with because. Um, this technology is, is now available and usable. All right. I love these sort of stories. Uh, how paper crumples. And it can oh, be yeah, rather surprising. Something we just never think about. Yeah. No, I love this. Particularly because it's a... Um uh, some th- there's some theoretical physics involved, right? And of course, that's how we do theoretical physics. We write, you know, on bits of paper, and then when we get the wrong answer, we crumple them up and throw them away. <laughs> so eventually, there <laughs> um, was a physicist thinking about this process. I guess he's, you know, um, he's so many crumpled up bits of paper um, for whatever he was working on. He, he decided he'd better come up with a theory of crumpling paper. So he actually set out to do it in a, in a kind of a systematic way. So he'd take is taking sheets of paper and rolling them up into a cylinder. Mm-hmm. 
um, and then crushing them from above, so sort of crumpling the cylinder um, from above. And he did this over and over again. So he'd, he'd crumple the paper and then um, fold it out again and flatten it and he'd crumple again. And what he was asking himself, is there any kind of pattern that, that keeps happening as I crumple the paper? And one thing he found is it, doesn't, it never crumples the same way twice. So even if you've kind of pre-crumpled the paper, um, the next time you do it, it'll, it'll crumple differently and you'll introduce new creases um, in, in the paper. So it doesn't, doesn't fold up the same way twice. And you, pro- you know, we probably kind of, kind of realise that, that uh, um, uh, you know, every time you, you, there's only so many times you can wrap your presents in the same, in the same wrapping paper over time. Those, you keep introducing crumples uh, in that wrapping paper no matter how careful you are. But what he found is there's a, there's a law to how this happens. Um, and he found there was um, the, the the more he crumpled, actually there was a there was a, um, a physical law about the length of those crumples. So he actually he looked at all sorts of different things about the crumples. But if he added up, if he took a ruler and measured the length of all those crumples in the paper, uh-huh. um, there was there was a law that 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 was very systematic. So if you take one sheet of paper and crumple it over and over again, and then you take another sheet of paper and crumple and crumple it over and over again, there's, a, there's actually a physical law that tells you how the length of those crumples evolve. Um, so it's not just completely random. Um, there's, there's some order to the, um, to the apparent randomness of crumpling paper. Far out. Um, yeah. You never know. I'm sure that's a sort of um, basic research that could actually have uh, applications when you think about it. No, that's right. And you start to think about all sorts of other materials that, that fail, you yeah, know, when, yeah. a, when, a, when a building falls down or even an earthquake, right? We're, we're essentially what we've got is crumpling um, of, of plates um, to, to sort of see the sort of systematic behaviour in, in paper. Um, I, think, I think the race is on to see whether this is wider beyond paper now, whether we can observe this in other systems. And that's, that's the stuff that, that physicists get really excited about. When we detect something, you know, we find something in one system and then we see behaviour across a whole range of systems doing the same thing. Yeah, the scientist has paired out a little secret from nature that we haven't seen that's, before. That's right, and and what a strange one. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew there was, you know, in the art and that in the act of crumpling up paper and, and throwing it in the um, in the bin that there was actually some real physics going on. Sean Hendy, thank you so much. I'll end with crumpling up this. There we go. Who would have thought there's a pattern? Science and action. (laughs) Next up, astronomy. The big news this week, NASA, another tremendous success, uh, landing refrigerator on Mars. Ah. Weekend Variety. Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr Grant Christie. Here we go, as we're heading into the home straight for the Weekend Variety Wireless and uh, the wonderful astronomy section with Grant Christie. Hi, Grant. Graham, how are you? Not bad. Uh, it's a thing, isn't it, getting something to Mars? It and is. NASA have proved that they're the experts at it. Their yep. success rate is amazing. Everybody else's is a dud. Yep, they scored that one beautifully uh, on uh, Tuesday morning, our time. Um, I watched it it was a good time for us you know eight till nine in the morning so it was pretty good Uh, and i thought the coverage was fantastic um you know you knew what was going on while it was happening they explained everything really well 
Yeah, so if, if that's a, an indication of what they're going to be doing in the future, I'll be watching mm. just about them all. It was oh. really quite moving, actually, and These seeing a lot of happy people jumping up and down. I mean, hell, they've that put five years into getting the damn thing there. That moment of excitement, there's nothing quite like it, <laughs> is just, it? just went like clockwork, and it's, it's worth saying that, you know, so far the USA is the only, um, or NASA, I guess, is the only organization that's actually managed to land anything on Mars. Yeah. They've only had one failure. They had to they tried to land something at a polar up at the one of the poles of Mars and that failed. But apart from that everything's worked fine wow. and uh, been a treasure trove. Yeah. So uh, yeah, because I'm just such an astronomy buff, I forgot about it and I forgot it was on. Jeez, I was so disappointed. Because watching it live is the thing, really, isn't it? Well, you, yeah, you yeah, it was. Tension. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. You could suddenly, everyone could suddenly get very sort of crestfallen and when they realise that some chute didn't open or yeah. something, you know, I mean, but but also there's a couple of little videos uh, that we've got that uh, show you the intricate detail of the landing process. Um, and uh, they've... Um, it, it, there's, there's a whole lot of things that could go wrong, but they've they've come up with ways that are pretty near fail-safe. You know, it's using explosive bolts to s separate things and the whole bit. Um, and uh, uh, but the, one of their engineers explains all those steps really well. And yeah, it's a it's a method they used before. The one that they landed up in uh, the Phoenix lander that they landed yeah. up near the sort of the, the polar regions that did land properly. That scraped a bit of ice. That scraped a bit of ice and uh, and uh, also showed drips of liquid water actually on its foot on its landing pad, which was interesting. Mm. But anyway, so that that they used exactly the same body and technique as that lander because you know if it ain't broken don't fix it yeah. if you know that works you don't want to get too adventurous yeah yeah it's not a very big thing it's only about a meter high this thing and about two or three meters long with right. its with its uh solar panels yep. folded out yeah um and it's uh it's going to be doing some really interesting science and uh well into the future too it's not just uh i mean it's powered by solar power so it it can keep, they'll keep it ticking along. But it'll get covered in dust, though. Uh, yeah, it'll reduce the power a little bit, but it's not bad. And then the wind comes up and it blows the dust off. So, I mean, it's it's pretty good. No I mean, one's thought of adding windscreen wipers or something? No, no, because they use power. Mm. I don't know. It probably <laughs> probably isn't necessary. I mean, the little, um, you know, the... They, I bet you they have thought about these things. They've, I'm, the I'm sure they've thought about everything, but yeah. I mean, I think that they, when they're clean, they can produce about six or seven hundred watts of power, which is enough to run all the scientific instruments by a factor of two or three. So they can oh. accumulate a fair bit of dust and still run. Far out. Um, but once, uh, I mean, they're going to make this hole down in, in or, uh, um, you can call it drilling if you like, but it's actually like a penetrator, and it's got a little hammer that bangs on that. Thing and drives he drives it deeper and deeper and deeper into the ground. Hopefully, so over about forty or fifty days, starting in February, they're going to hammer this thing down. And every um, every sort of half meter or so, they stop and measure the heat flow coming out of the planet, uh. and then go down down deeper and deeper, and you know that whole process. So hammering this thing down, um, and uh, yeah, so down to a depth of five meters is what they've they've allowed for. And that will tell them how much heat's coming out of the planet. That We don't know that at the moment. Right. Well, I... It seems just far too hopeful f f um, given my experience of digging down anywhere or trying to put <laughs> anything into the ground. 
um, a meter, Wouldn't let it? alone five meters. Yeah, you're f- it always hits something. It yeah. goes bang. Well, you might find an old sewer pipe or something. They could. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, but, 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 but more to the point, you could find a sort of like a sort of a half meter size iron meteorite just underneath it. That would be a bit of bad luck. Yeah, it'd just go bang. And you wouldn't get anywhere... I, I bet you they get stuck. Oh, I think the chances of that are small, Graham. Why? Think, Why are they small? Well... There are rocks there, aren't they, that are harder than their the, bangy thing? Well, their bangy thing's pretty pretty hard-nosed. Is it? I think uh, they will have tested it and so on. Another and thing they would have thought about. I would think so. But uh, I, I think an iron meteorite would stop them. But uh, yeah. I don't think it buried in the ground. But I don't think that's likely. It's very unlikely. Okay. But uh, so... No um, tree roots anyway. That's a handy Yeah, but thing. There, there's all sorts of other interesting little things. For example, the um, moon Phobos, as it goes around the planet every 11 hours, mm. actually distorts the planet by about one and a half centimetres where this thing's standing. Phobos and isn't big enough to do it, that, it's, it's got it? just enough gravity to distort the surface of Mars. Distort the planet, yeah. So that's the wonderful thing about gravity. So, uh, so long into the future, they're going to be monitoring this up and down of the uh, planet's surface um, as well, and that's telling them about the structure of the interior. And also, it'll be the although they're monitoring for moon um, Mars quakes Mm. as well. That's another instrument they've got Um, that will also record all decent sort of meteorite impacts on Mars. Ah. So, although they've uh, normally, if you're doing this seismology stuff on Earth, you have detectors all around the Earth and at least three or four of them in different parts so you can sort of measure the um, the waves travelling through the middle of the earth from an earthquake. Right. But uh, with only one site there, it's a bit more complicated. Um, but fortunately, there's these other things that uh, occur that allows them to um, get a much better handle, like the sort of random meteorite impacts. Right. Um, and once they've recorded one, then they're going to get the orbiting spacecraft to try to pinpoint exactly where it happened. Oh. Because it'll leave a hole in the ground or a mark, anything big enough to generate... You know, quakes that run right through the planet. Be able to calibrate its um, <coughs> accuracy, perhaps. Yeah. If you see that. Uh, and the little thing that's measuring these shakes. I like the little tea cozy that they put on the yeah. top of it. Hey, eh? it's just a neat little yeah, thing. It's just going to sit there, and they haven't deployed it yet. I don't think it's in the next few days. I mm. think they're starting to put out the instruments. So they're basically surveying the air around them. They, I might say that the cameras on board are probably very good. They're, every ex-mission, the camera technology gets better and better and better. Right. So we're going to get some great views. It's a very bland piece of Mars, I might say. It's uh, just On a, purpose. Uh, and exactly. They didn't want to land anywhere near rocks, um, boulders or anything like that that would uh, sort of upset the landing. They wanted as smooth a surface as possible. Um, and they hit it on target. So, fantastic. So Yeah, well done. Oh, and these CubeSats were a bit of a chat, aren't they? Oh, they were good. They they worked perfectly. Yeah. So, I mean, they're cheap to make. And so, yeah, it meant that uh, when... When the lander, all the activity was over the Martian horizon to Earth, and you couldn't actually communicate anyway. It does, it's not powerful enough to send a radio signal at, in that detail. But they, so they use these little um, things about the size of a briefcase. They're what we call CubeSats, yep. miniature little satellites that were just trailing along with it, and they were they could they were in position to watch the landing take place or listen to the radio signals and then transmit them back to Earth. So you got rapid transmission of information that wasn't having to wait five hours till right. the planet turned and you could see whether the thing was alive or dead. You don't need a post office exchange no. circling Mars. Well, Mars Odyssey is still orbiting around and it can, uh, and every few hours, every five hours or so, it goes over the top of uh, where it is and it can receive data from the, the lander and transmit mm. it to Earth as well. So, right. so it did, there was a lot of immediacy. We knew immediately because of those little... 
CubeSats. We knew exactly cool. what had happened. Yeah. All right. Uh, a couple of videos explaining exactly what did happen. Uh, one of them, of course, produced hoping what might happen, but it did. So it sticks good. Uh, now, Comet 46P uh, is approaching Earth. Yes, it's going to come within about 12 million kilometres of Earth. Um, this is a very interesting comet. It was discovered in 1948 by an astronomer at Lick Observatory. Um, its orbit uh, goes from basically the orbit of Earth out to Jupiter. So as it goes around, every now and again, as it goes around, it happens to get out near Jupiter's orbit at the same time Jupiter's at that point on its orbit. And so Jupiter gives it a kick, and it's given it several kicks in the time since we've known about it going around. Um, in addition to that, um, as it comes close to the Earth's orbit every now and again, like this time, huh? uh, it's, it happens to be at that part of the orbit at the same time as Earth is. Oh. So it's also come close. So Jupiter disturbs the orbit of this um, comet. Yeah. It's, uh, it's only a small body. It's only about a kilometre across, which is actually a fairly small. But it's very, it produces a lot of material. So when it gets near the sun, as it is at the moment, which is the Earth's orbit side of its range, uh, then it starts to spew out a lot of material. Um, and it's, uh, so it's not going to be easy to see. Um, I can give you a sort of bit more of an update in another week or so. Why? Um, because it's spinning out all this material. Well, it's it's actually a, a small body, and that material is quite diffuse, and ah. so and also it's going to be competing with moonlight. It it might not reach naked eye visibility. It'll be an easy telescope object, though. So if you've, mm -hmm. we'll t sort of have a better handle on it yeah. in another week or so. But it's at its closest approach on the sixteenth. Mm. So what's it doing with this? Palling up with Jupiter. I thought comets came from way over there. Well, they do. They get trapped. Uh, I mean, these are ones that have been um, orbiting the solar system. They've had an encounter with something at Jupiter, and then they get trapped into a, a new orbit. Jupiter is so massive, it changes the orbits a lot. Right. So that's, yeah, so it's, uh, there's a whole lot of comets that are in sort of fairly tight orbits around the sun, mm. you know, with only five-year periods. There's a whole lot that are way out beyond, um, mm. and often they've got into the central solar system and because they've had some encounter with a planet or something further out that's changed their orbit and left them, sort of deflected them into the central part of the solar system where we are. So, right, like Halley. Well, Halley's an example. 72. Yeah, well, so Halley goes from, um, uh, you know, sort of roughly the Earth neighbourhood out to past Neptune and mm -hmm. then back that that's its orbit in every 76 years okay didn't it break up last time or something it, yeah or oh, it had some incident they went oh dear no I no. can't recall it did oh okay oh, I saw the insurance claim <laughs> all right but yeah so yeah so comets uh you know they're, they're pretty common but it's uh it's 46p means that it's periodic means it's periods less than a couple of hundred years mm. um that's a short period comet some of them have periods of millions of years, yeah. uh, go a long way further out. And uh, 46 means the 46th one, Halley is 1p. So it was the first periodic oh, comet really? discovered. So its, it's scientific number is 1p. This is 46p. So by 1948, only 46 comets had been found that were had an orbital period of less than 200 years. Far out. And this has only got five-year period or thereabouts. Oh, it's nice to know that. Um, now, Jezero Crater has been selected as landing site for this 2020 rover. Man, there's a lot of contention about where to land the rover, isn't there? Been a Big huge, arguments. A huge surveys done. They got it down to about three or four landing sites, and then they sort of did a blitz on those potential landing sites 
and each scientific group were, had their own particular favourites for their own things they wanted to discover. But they have now converged on the Jezero uh, crater or Jezero mm. crater. Um, it's, uh, so this is going to land a, another rover, sort of kind of like Curiosity, only more capable, a lot more capable, um, and it will be seriously looking for life or an evidence of past life and evidence of possible life right now. But it's, a, it's clearly a river plain where there's been a river come down and it's like an alluvial plain, um, and uh, so a lot of scientists think that that's a, a, you know, a very good place to start looking. A liquid moment. has flowed there for more than a day. Oh yes, well, I mean this goes back. Well, in fact, that it hasn't flowed there for billions of years. So, but you know, we're talking about life that, particularly that mm. might have existed in the past. It's it's an outside chance it could exist now, but it's that's probably pretty remote. But it's, uh, but it's quite likely that there's been life on Mars, frankly, in the in the very distant past. Mm. Um, and uh, that's a, a good place to look. All right. Oh, well, good luck to them. So once it's done, it's done, isn't it? They can't really change their mile now. No, well, it's going to be cruising around driving. This will actually be a rover, so it'll be driving around on Mars looking for um, all sorts of interesting things. Um, and uh, it'll be a fascinating thing in 2020 mm. if they can get it down and working. Okay. Uh, detective mission to characterise and trace the history of a new African meteorite. Yeah, this one uh, sort of... Well, the, 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 what's sort of kind of special about this one is that they actually know when it arrived because people actually heard a big sonic boom and it was a fairly biggish object that then fractionated and split into little bits, so they've been picking up bits. Um, it's also a very ancient meteorite, so it goes back like 4.6 billion years. It's oh. not a sort of relatively recent thing at all. Um, <clears throat> So there's been a lot of, uh, um, it, it made a sonic boom and that was detected by um, instruments that look out for people, you know, testing nuclear weapons. Yeah. Those, they still work today. Um, and uh, it, um, it's, it's a sort of a primitive meteorite in that it's got um, low iron content and it's also been partially melted and that astronomers call those an L6 chondrite. Because you can see clumps of the early stuff that the planets were built of, little clumps inside it. Uh -huh. um, they've only just started working on these. I'll be taking them apart atom by atom and learning as much as possible. But it's, uh, yeah, so there's been quite a few people. People have picked up other bits of it as well. Um, so they're trying to get them all together as much as possible, but mm. they'll be scattered over a wide range. But to get an, an, a meteorite that's, you know when it's landed, you know it's fresh right now and it hasn't had a chance to rust and other things on the Earth's environment uh, okay. and get contaminated. So um, these are often called a poor man's satellite. I mean, they're, they're sort of, uh, instead of having to send a satellite out to an asteroid to ah. get a pristine bit and bring it back to Earth and spend uh, $500 million doing right. it, um, you know, these are the extra little goodies that nature provides that just fall on the ground. All right. You may hear some um, banging in the background. On this, you can hear that buzz. That's uh, the emergency alarm on an elevator, previously unknown. And the banging apparently is Paul Henry trying to get back in. <laughs> <laughs> we had no idea where he's where he's been for the last few years. And apparently somebody's just feeding him crackers under the gap of the door <laughs> and trying to keep him alive. And he's, uh, because of the, the, all the big changes happening here, he thinks he's got another opportunity and he's trying to get out. Well, he's just run a bit late, I think. Well, he might have. <laughs> okay, uh, so a mild apology for 
Paul Henry's interruptions to our broadcast. Now, um, astronomers spotting another star, like Tabby's star. Tabby's star has become so famous. <laughs> it is. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a star that was dis- detected by the Kepler Space Telescope that spent uh, three years looking at the same patch of sky and measuring the brightness of about 150,000 stars every mm. half hour without interruption, with great precision. And it was looking for planets that were going in front of their stars and causing little dips. So that's what it was designed to look for. But out of those 150,000 stars that were studying, uh, they discovered this one It was noticed by this woman um, uh, astronomer in uh, Louisiana. Tabitha. Tabitha. Hmm. Um, she, Tabitha uh, Stevens, per chance, of no. 1164 Morning Glory Crescent? <laughs> Mother Samantha? Father Darren? No. No. Okay. Never mind. Anyway, that would have so, been so, nice. Anyway, so it's, it's just been nicknamed Tabby Star for that because she it was discovered actually by, first noticed by amateurs going through the Kepler data set and they drew their, t- their attention to it and mm. then she started looking at it and saying, well, this is weird. So basically what the star does is just... Every now and again, every couple of years, it seems to undergo these episodes of fading and by as much as 20%, um, which is a big fade. I mean, if a planet like Jupiter goes in front of a star, you might expect a drip or a drop of 1%. So this is... And they're irregular, and then there'll be nothing for a long time, and then there'll be another batch of fades and so on. And the star was a sort of mature star like the sun, and the sun doesn't do that sort of stuff. And so astronomers have never heard of this sort of act or seen this sort of activity before, so it became a sort of a unique case. But, um, and but all now sorts the, of theories came about. That's right. They? Well, it was the one theory, of course, that got a lot of media attention, something saying aliens were building some structure around and they hadn't finished it yet and that was, was, was caught in the dimming. We now know it's dust. There's no question now that the d- dips in the brightness of Tabby Star are dust. We don't know why the dust is there and why it's all clumpy in that particular way. So this is really nailed now. Yeah, there's no question it's dust. That's been examined by very big telescopes okay. now, and it's uh, exactly what you expect from dust. Dust reddens the light coming through it in a particular way. Okay. Leads you in no doubt. But uh, so, um, but there's also surveys going on now that are measuring the, the brightness of millions and millions of stars every night. And so it's now starting to turn up some of these other cases. And this is one that's another one that's been spotted. In fact, there's two more that have, that have these sort of weird sort of dips, um, but they're, they're dipping down by 80% or one is even sort of 90%. So the, the, the dips are much sharper. So in other words, they're also probably dust. That's going to be examined by big telescopes and prove that, but that seems to be the likely thing. So somehow in some of the, around some of these stars, something breaks up could be a collision of, uh, like a rare collision between two planets, could create a lot of debris for a long time. A failed cohesion? <clears throat> oh, could be. Um, I mean, it's got to be clumps all around. I mean, it can't, uh, It could be just even even something like a, a disruption of a large comet uh-huh. due to a collision could possibly uh, produce that as well. So um, at the moment, it's just not known. But uh, So now they're finding other instances of this, and as these surveys get more and more extensive, measuring, you know, millions and millions of stars every night, you're going to find these rare events. And the reason that Tabby Star originally was such a sort of an eye popper was that, you know, it was the first time it had been seen. Mm. And that makes astronomers very excited when they see something like that because there's, you know, how do we explain it? Mm. So, but it looks like it's not alone and uh, just a, a, but a relatively rare event. It's not something our solar system's probably ever undergone. Right. 
I wonder though, with ninety percent is a huge dip. Yeah, isn't that's it? all. It's almost faded right away. So I mean, what? it doesn't last long. So a big clump of dust orbiting, and we happen to be looking in the same plane as the orbit. Uh, in other words, it's like a, instead of a planet going, if a planet went in front of its star, you'd expect a little dip because the planet's really quite compact and dense. Yeah. But if, uh, and it blocks basically all the light when it's in front of its star. Um, a lot of light comes around the side of it, but the, yeah, yeah. The, the planet itself is very dense. But if it's just a, if you made that planet into more like a diffuse cloud, then you'd see a, a much softer right. decline. It wouldn't be sharp. It would last a longer. Big it would bell have, curve. And it would have spread out as well around right. the orbit a bit. So you'll have clumps here and there, and it'll go up and down. Oh, I so see. So that's what they're thinking is happened. Some some disruption event like that uh, in the four either, and uh, one of these stars, the one that they've just detected, is actually quite a young star. Which you kind of expect, because you know when solar systems are forming, there's a lot of debris around that actually gets used to build planets. That's mm -hmm. what happened in our solar system. Mm. But those dusty clouds have all gone, because once a star starts coming to life and really pouring out a lot of light, that light pushes all the dust away again, oh. and it clears out the central part of the solar system. So right. you don't have dusty clouds going around unless it, they only survive for a limited time because the sunlight or the light from the star basically clears the space again. So our sun has cleaned up affairs apart from the asteroid belt, really? That's right. And if, if there was two, you know, a big comet had a collision or something in our solar system, it would create a lot of dust in the solar system and somebody looking from the outside would possibly see that material um, periodically, uh, you know, dimming our sun's light, um, okay. and that would tell them it had been something that happened relatively recently because our sun's light is so strong it would blow the cloud away after a um, few million years. Okay, and the fingerprint of the first stars, these first stars um, uh, very, very distant because if you're talking first, you're talking what, 13 billion years ago? Or yes, something? that's right. Well, this was oh, a big this years was a big, away. Yeah, well, this is a big story published in a paper published in Nature earlier this year that some radio astronomers using some um, very sensitive instrument that they set up in the sort of back blocks of Australian desert mm. away from all radio interference had managed to detect the um, this a, a slight absorption of light that. Um, uh, and the date that they put on that would have been back at about, um, around about sort of 70 to 100 million years after the Big Bang. Well, just to give you some idea, um, the Hubble Space Telescope can probably see back to within about 500 million years of the Big Bang. So this is an epoch that no telescope's ever probed before. Wow. And basically what they're saying is that the uh, the only way to explain that, or the best way to explain that dip is that that is the signals the formation of the very first stars in the universe. So the universe didn't come into existence with any stars. It only came into existence with hydrogen and helium. It, the stars didn't start to form for another sort of, you know, maybe 200 million years, I think. But now this... Paul? Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, he's banging again. Sorry. Carry on. Yep. Yeah, so, the, so basically this, is, this was the first evidence astronomers that have seen of the first stars that ever started in the universe. And there was a characteristic about them. The, the absorption that they saw from those stars was a funny sort of box-shaped profile. And a lot of astronomers thought that that was pretty weird because they expected it to be a much more like a bell curve type of shape, that um, nice uh -huh. sort of smooth shape. Um, but uh, now a theorist has come up with a, an explanation. Modeling, if you model it and you find that if all the stars, the first stars that formed, all formed in groups of like a billion at a time, like in a big starburst thing out of a huge bunk of gas, then you would expect to see uh, sharper edges to your 
that right. dip. And so what they're saying is that uh, this is the first sort of idea of how the first stars got going. Um, there's still all sorts of unknowns about that. We know they obviously did start, but we've only just got the instruments to start probing it. And more people are starting to look at this now. There's more instruments being built in the square kilometre array. This enormous radio telescope that's being built in Australia and South Africa is going to have the sensitivity to look at this in a lot more detail within, you know, maybe the next four or five years. Okay. Have they finished it? It's under construction. I think the Meerkat part, part of it's under, is under what is actually... It's going in stages, but part of it's already working in South Africa. Okay. Um, in the Australian. So it's the sort of thing you can turn on half of it and then add on bits. <coughs> yeah, yeah, because you've just got a whole lot of dishes out, and if you've got see. a third of the dishes there, that's still a very powerful telescope. It's right. just going to get bigger and better as they add, get more and more added to the network. Right, and when they turn it on, the lights of Cape Town dim, don't they, because the <laughs> computer's pretty grunty. Yeah, I mean, the computer, that's right. I mean, in order to process that data, it's, it's so enormous. The flood of data coming from the square kilometre array radio telescope will be so great that you, uh, you, can't, you can't store it. I mean, it's like the, the total amount of the internet every, you know, few seconds or something. I mean, it's, it's absurd how much data it is. So the, they have to build this enormous processing power to process all the data coming off in real time and condense it because they can't store it. And that takes a huge amount of energy. Bloody hell. Small nuclear power stations worth. Bloody hell. But they're looking for clever ways to do it. People at AUT University are looking at the sort of processing problems. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're making an interesting contribution. Right. Maybe they're going to help get Paul out of the lift. He's been there for years. <laughs> OK. Grant, thank you so much. Uh, you're a soldier for science and understanding astronomy. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Yeah. Oh, got a lot of coverage, didn't it? Congratulations, that stupid fat doofus. That, no, that beautiful bird, the wood pigeon, who took it out. Uh, plant of the year. There is such a thing. New Zealand Plant Conservation Network run it and we will give you the results and outline some of the amazing plants that have been voted for uh, during November. The results out today for New Zealand's Plant of the Year. Also, tomorrow... I discuss a book called American Intolerance with Robert Bartholomew, a sociologist. I asked him about Donald Trump and he reckons... He's not as unintelligent as a lot of people think he is. Really? How do you know that? I don't. More tomorrow.